0: I've entitled the morning's message The Things That You Have Seen and so let's open our Bibles to Revelation uh, chapter 1 and my goal this morning is to go verse by verse but our text is really found for us that Paul read earlier verses 12 through 20 which is a description of the Lord, and I might point out here that it's different from where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, The description here is different. It simply tells us in Matthew, I think it's 17, that uh, his garments turned um, pure white at that time, and that's all really the description that is given to us. Here it is much more detailed, Um, John turns around after hearing a voice behind him verse 12 I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to his feet girded about the chest with a golden band his head and his hair were white like wool white as snow and his eyes like the flames of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me, and saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Revelation in verse three um, is the only one that says, I am special. And because of the word blessing here, it is the last of the 66 books in uh, the word of God. And this morning we'll look at uh, four major topics. Um, I want to look at verse four as he opens, talking about grace and peace along with faith and works as one subject. Uh, The second one we find in also in verse four, the second part, what are the seven spirits before the throne? Then number three, the different Old Testament appearances. We call them Christophanies, or Old Testament appearances of Jesus. Um, And we'll be going back and looking at them. And then chapter 1, verse 19 actually gives us the key to the entire book of Revelation. Let's go back to verse 1, and we'll read the first Four verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, and to all things that he saw. How blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was and who is to come. I got a, I got a comma there or I want to stop. <clears throat> and talk a little bit about grace and peace. Grace and peace, always in the new order, whether Paul is writing an epistle, or in this case, it's John, um, we notice that grace is first and peace is second. And you cannot know the peace of God until you've experienced the grace of God. And um, I'd like to, do our first little study completely talking about uh, the grace of God, that we're saved by this grace, uh, apart from works, but I also want to talk about the importance of works because of God's grace in our life. So our first cross-reference this morning is in the book of Romans. I'm going to have you turn to Romans chapter 11, and we're just going to look at one verse We were here last week and read the whole chapter. I want to look at verse 6 of Romans chapter 11 as he talks about the difference between grace and works. He says, if by grace, he's talking about our salvation, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But, If it is of works, in other words, if we're saved because of our good works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In other words, you can't have it one way. You can't be saved by doing good works. You can only be saved by the grace of God. Now, the byproduct of that is this peace that comes upon us Because when we strive to please God in our own righteousness, we always fall short. I think last week I I made the mention that in the Proverbs or the Psalms, it declares that even on your your best day, you're going to fall seven times, either in thought, word, or deed. We simply cannot um, please God because of our works. Well, some might say, well, what about James? Well, what about James? Let's go to James chapter two because he, it appears that he might be saying just the opposite but that's not the case at all and I'll explain when we get there. James chapter two beginning with uh, verse 14. James says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Now I like this, even the demons believe and tremble. Several times when the Lord confronted a demon-possessed person, the demon would actually speak out and say, what have you to do with us Jesus, Son of the Most High God, have you come to torment us before the time? They're aware who Jesus is. They believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but that doesn't mean they're going to heaven. Matter of fact, their concern was, are you going to send us to the pit before that time? So don't overlook this verse. There's a lot of doctrine in it. Even the demons believe and tremble but do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And a scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was a counter to him for righteousness. And he was called, and I like this, the friend of God of God you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only likewise also Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way for as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without works is dead also well you say what is it Dwight well here's the order Just as grace produces peace, but grace has to come first, and the byproduct of that is this peace that passes human understanding, there's an order here, grace first, peace second, and because of grace, we will do good works. It isn't the good works that saves us. Ephesians 2, 8 clearly says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. In other words, not of our works. It is a gift of God. Yet, how many people do you know, and I know, <laughs> if you ask them, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? And they'll probably answer, answer in the affirmative, yes, I believe I'm going to heaven. Well, why do you believe you're going to heaven? And all of a sudden, they it's if think that God is judging on some sort of bell curve here that they've done more good things than they have done bad things and therefore because of the good things that they've done their rationale is they'll make it into heaven as a result of that. Um, many people, I would say a majority that are not born again Christians don't understand it's, you're saved by grace apart from works. And that's what we read in uh, Romans 11, verse 6. If it's grace, it's grace. And we're saved by grace, period. Or you can try to make it on your own uh, by works. But according to the scriptures, you pretty much have, not pretty much, you will have had to have lived a perfect life from the moment you were born. David said, "Even he said, I was conceived in sin. And so even coming out as, as a young baby, the curse was already placed upon him because of Adam and, and Eve's sin in the garden. Uh, we were born with the disease of sin and God has provided one atonement for it, perfection. Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law, I haven't. I've come to fulfill it. Well, what's the law? Well, there's not just 10 of them, there's 613 of them. And Jesus Christ is the only one who was fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, and he never sinned once in thought, word, or deed. So what happened on the cross, according to the Corinthians, is, uh, I call it the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin for us, me, and you, and then he gave us his righteousness. That's why we call it the great exchange. He took my sin, but then he imparted unto me his own righteousness. Well, we've made it to verse 4. Let's go back to the book of Revelation. Look at the second half of it. And verse four, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. Now part B of this is a change of thought and it says from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And I don't want to just skip over that but ask the question, what do we have in view here? And I have to tell you straight out, I cannot be dogmatic, but I can give you a couple things that I think it is. Um, Notice that it says the seven spirits that are before the throne. Turn turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 25, and also turn to Isaiah, chapter 11, and I'll give you a couple thoughts of what we might have in view here. In Exodus 25, the Lord has given to Moses the instructions on the, what's going to be the wilderness tabernacle, would have the table of showbread, it would have uh, the Ark of the Covenant, it would have the table of showbread. I'm interested in the golden lampstands. Now, in the wilderness tabernacle, um, it would have been divided, the tabernacle itself would have been divided into two main compartments. The Holy place, would have contained the um, table of showbread, the altar of incense, but also the golden lampstand. And um, in verse 31, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its spools, its ornamental knobs and flowers will be in one piece. And six branches shall come out of its side, three branches on on the lampstand on one side and three branches on the other Uh, and stand on the other side. And three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms of one branch with an ornament, knob, and flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornament, knob, and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornament knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second, two branches of the same, and a knob under the third, two branches the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be one piece All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. Now notice verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in the front of it. As you entered into the tent of the holy place, the only light that would have been there would have been um, the light coming from this golden candelabra. By the way, they've made one of these exactly to scale at the Temple Mount Institute in the Jewish Quarter in Jerusalem. And it's on display. And it's made according to this pattern here. And um, John the Baptist's father, when the angel of the Lord appeared to John's father, um, the Levites would, uh, they would work on a rotating basis to... Keep the showbread there to make sure that there was oil on a regular basis. Uh, these were uh, manual jobs of actually putting the oil in there so that the light wouldn't go out. Now, it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4b, that there are seven spirits before the throne. In the next room past the curtain would have been the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. So one of the possibilities, what we have in view here, is if the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies represents the glory of God, it's possible that what we have in view here are these seven lampstands. That's one thought, but it does say spirits, the seven spirits. So let's go now to the book of Isaiah chapter 11 for another possibility. And Again, I can't be dogmatic on on any, even these two, but it is interesting to me that in chapter 11, talking about Jesus, uh, verse one, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And then we have the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge of the Lord and of the fear of the Lord. And if you count them up here, we have seven spirits that basically um, make up um, the spirit that would rest upon uh, the the Lord Jesus Christ, the stem of Jesse. All right, back to Revelation. Again, I can't be dogmatic. It could be a reference to seven special angels. But I didn't want to just skip over it, so let's read all all of verse four together. Grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, in verse five through seven, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood, and he has made us kings and priests, to God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Before I get to verse 7, he's made us kings and priests. Just turn, we'll be here in a couple weeks, to Revelation 2, verse 26. This is one of the promises. Seven letters to seven church. Every church is going to receive a different promise, but even though it's a different promise to a different church, it's inclusive. All the promises pertain to you and I. But this went about ruling and reigning with him. We find in verse 26, And he who overcomes, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you just continue to abide in the Lord until he comes. Just don't go back to your old ways. Don't backslide. Don't give up. And he who does overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and as potters' vessels shall be broken to pieces. All right, go back to... Verse six, and he has made us, the church, kings and priests. Well, you know, the whole Michelangelo thing about sitting on some clouds strumming a harp, <laughs> that's not quite what's gonna be happening. We're gonna have administrative roles. The Bible says, don't you realize that you're going to judge angels as people in authority during the millennial kingdom reign as kings and And priests. Now, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Let me just stop here and make the distinction. And it says, And every eye will see him. This can only be a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the battle of Armageddon. And every eye will see him. Now, this is different from the rapture of the church. And we'll get into that in more detail in chapter 4. And But here it says, every eye will see him. That's yeah, so what Matthew 24 says about the second coming. And they also who pierced him, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. We just have one verse that talks about him being pierced, and the tribes of the world mourning when they see him. Well, where we really have clarification for this is in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, 12 and 13, and I'm going to ask you to turn there now. Uh, Zechariah is right before the last book of Malachi, so that should be an easy place for you to turn to. Um, chapter 12, oh, there's one. So I want to start with 10, but let's go back to verse eight. It says, In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of God before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. If you're taking notes this morning, you want to jot down Psalm 2 because it's a reference to the Battle of Armageddon. That's what this is a reference to here. And now we have a gap. And it talks about when he returns and what is the attitude of the people of Israel. Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication Then they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieves for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Then it gets into depth in talking about and you'd have to be Jewish and you'd have to be waiting your whole life for the hope of the Messiah I think a fiddle around the roof in the back of my mind right now as they're being forced to leave one of their cities in Russia and one of them says, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? So their whole life, they've been waiting for the kingdom but when we get to the New Testament, John one eleven, 11, he came into his own, his own received him not. They rejected him eventually as the Messiah and called for his crucifixion. So you'd almost have to be Jewish to realize that it was really their Messiah that they crucified. And now it's hitting them. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, verse 11, like the mourning of a Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. Their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves in other words, the depth of the morning is so great, just leave me alone. I have to digest this. I want to grieve in my own way because of what we did. And what did they do? Just turn to chapter to chapter 13. And one of them, verse 6, asked Jesus this question. And someone will say to him, what are these wounds that you have in your hands? And then he will answer, well, those which I received in the house of my friends. (sighs) Talk about a dart to the heart as uh, they understand that the one that they had waited so long for, um, the Lord prophesied them missing this very event. All right, let's make our way back to the book of Revelation. Revelation. Uh, we're up to verse eight. He says, and this is one of the titles that he gives to himself. Worship team did a great job opening with this song called I Am Alpha and Omega. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There are many names Attributed to the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, one we always quote around Christmas time, we read For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, speaking of the millennial kingdom. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Don't let anybody ever tell you the Trinity's not in the Bible. These are all attributed to the son that was given and the child that was born that can only be a reference to Jesus Christ. But his title, Everlasting Father. It's the, the wonderment of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the last title given here is Prince of Peace. How do you get that peace? Well, it's the grace first. Accepting God's grace and then experiencing his peace. Well, um, in verse nine, going back to uh, Revelation here, it tells us, I, John, your brother, and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom of his patience was on the island that is called Patmos. I put this on the screen last week, but maybe you weren't watching last week. This is Patmos. It is off uh, the coast of modern-day Turkey. I've been there one time as we um, did a side trip to the seven churches. We did five out of seven or four out of seven. I can't really remember. But anyway, this is where John is writing the book of Revelation from. But I want to let you know why he was there. He says he was there on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, um, he's on an island that's basically a prison, and he is there for teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reason John is put there. John, again, is the only one of the disciples. Last week we mentioned that he lived to be 100. And um, the book of Revelation was written in 96 A.D., we believe. And today, um, I just got an email from our friends, Mike and uh, Colleen, um, our missionaries, to... China, uh, Mike had to leave China because the persecution was so severe, they're they're starting to, um, I th- said, clean, it's actually Katie Mc, uh, McMahon that she married. So Mike and Katie, uh, he sent me a, a letter and uh, he's telling me they they can't go back to China because it's too dangerous Uh, They got caught in Singapore when the pandemic hit, and he showed me a picture of where they were living. It's like on the 13th floor. People are helping them out because they didn't have money with them that uh, they administered to in the 80s, but they're, they're in this room. They live 15 miles away, but they're in lockdown, so they can't go home. And he says, Dwight, we don't have any furniture in here. (laughs) And and it's just such a surreal time. But um, uh, he's there um, and having to leave China because of the persecution of uh, pastors uh, being killed. John is on the island of Patmos um, for standing up for the gospel. I believe it's possible because of the animosity against the church right now. That um, persecution could be an uprise for anybody who's willing to take a stand and not compromise with this book. All right, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Let's just stop there. This could have one or two meanings. The Lord's day could mean it was just Sunday and that the Holy Spirit was upon him Or it also could be translated that he was transported forward in time to see the things that he's about to write about. And I think both could be true. Um, Again, that's something I would not be dogmatic about. Verse 11 And he heard this voice, and it sounded like a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. John, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. At this time, I'm going to put up on a screen a picture of where these seven churches would have been. All of them would be in what we call today modern-day Turkey, They were within 80 miles of each other. Uh, The book of Revelation contains special messages directed to churches in seven specific cities throughout the Roman province of Asia. These cities were important trade and communication centers, which were connected by major routes in New Testament times. Notice that John addresses the churches in exactly the order shown on this map in a clockwise order. Some scholars believe Revelation was a circular letter that would have been read first by the Ephesian church and then passed on to the next church on the route, And as a result, all the seven letters would have been read to all the seven churches. And they do pertain um, um, to the church. Now we're going to start this next week and um, we'll get into a little bit more detail on uh, the different churches, which ones would apply to us today and which ones I believe would not. But um, you can leave that up there for a while. That brings us, as John has given this instruction from the Lord to write these individual letters, and he hears this voice, but he has, it's coming from behind him, so he actually turns around and looks And that brings us to our text this morning, uh, 12 through 18, where we have this description. And really the only one in the New Testament, um, or really anywhere, that gives us such a detailed description of Jesus and his glorified heavenly body. So I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. We'll be reading that again, that same terminology in chapter 19 at the Battle of Armageddon. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me and said to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Praise the Lord. There's an amen here. Do I get an amen? Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. So here we have John giving a description in this first chapter of what Jesus is going to look like throughout eternity when we behold him. Kurt's beholding him right now as I speak and describes him in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. Here we have a New Testament full picture of the glorified Christ. However, we do have Old Testament appearances of Jesus. We call them Christophanies. I'm not gonna go through all of them, but um, it's not in the glorified form here Let's begin by going to, let's go to the first one. Um, Let's go to Genesis chapter 18. And also go to Genesis 14, but I want to take 18 first. Genesis 18 is the Lord shows up with a couple of angels. I'll just read the first three verses. Because it tells us that a Lord appeared to him by the terabith tree of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. Now when we go to Israel, there's a place that's called Genesis Land. We actually ride camels to get to this place. And Abraham um, plays the part. He's dressed like Abraham. And we go into his tent. We sit at a table on the ground. And we have this beautiful view looking down towards um, the wilderness all the way down uh, to, the, to the Jordan River. But when it says here sitting uh, at the tent of his door, I, I actually can identify with that and those of you who have been there with us, you have a picture in your mind. And so during the heat of the day, so he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet him and bowed himself to the ground and said, my Lord, If I have now fallen favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant, but let me bring a little water and wash your feet and rest and have some food. And the Lord consented to it. Now if you go to chapter 14, I believe we have another Old Testament appearance here, and I'll tell you why as we read this. And his name is Melchizedek. And this is after Abraham rescues Lot. Lot was living inside in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he was taken. And now Abraham took 300 men and went and rescued him. And he's now returning. Not only was he victorious, but he was bringing back this, some of the spoils um, or let's just read this, let's pick, pick it up and I'll comment on the spoils in just a little bit. So he's coming back uh, from this battle. Verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet, he met the valley of Shavi, that is the king's valley, after he returned from the defeat of the Chaldonians and the kings who were with him. And I'm looking just really quick because I want to make sure I got my numbers straight here. No, 18, uh, 318, verse 14. All right, now he's coming to what is called Salem then. We call it Jerusalem today. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who was delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tithe of all. And now the king of Sodom and Abraham gave me the person and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I, will, I have lifted my hand to the Lord most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. I'm not gonna take anything from a thread of a sandal strap that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abraham rich and so we have here first of all in israel you could be king or you could be a levite and be a priest but you couldn't be both we're told in the psalms and in hebrews and we'll go to, to both especially the one in hebrews that this melchizedek had neither beginning nor end of days well if i take that literally it can only be one, one person. And who has always been and always will be. Had no beginning of days nor end of days. That's why I believe this is an Old Testament appearance. And there's a little hint in here in verse 18. Melchizedek the king of, of Salem brought out what? Bread and wine. At the last supper the Lord says, I want you to do this and remember of me. Um, once a month, the first Sunday of the month, we remember Jesus dying for us. How do we do that? With bread and wine. And so the fact that he's bringing this out to Abraham to me is another indication that we have a Christophanes or an Old Testament appearance. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, um, chapter five. Paul had to explain why Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And he has to get into a lot of detail because he's got to explain why the, um, the priesthood of the Levites is inferior to the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, who lives forever to make intercession for us. Well, this is what, this is what a priest would do. He would offer the offerings for you. And so we're picking it up, and as he's explaining the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, um, well, let's pick it up in verse 1, even though I want to read down verse 10. He says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset by weaknesses. In other words, he had to make atonement for his own sins before he could make atonement for the people under the Levitical priesthood. Aaron was the first high priest, Moses' brother. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Now he's gonna make a comparison and a difference. He's saying it's not so with Jesus. And that's why, uh, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was who he said of him, now he quotes Psalm 2, verse seven, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, for taking notes. He also said in another place, You are a priest forever, like Melchizedek, according to the order of Melchizedek, and not after the order of the Levitical priesthood, who did not live forever. There they died, but not Melchizedek. So Paul's argument here is in explaining to them the superiority of Jesus is that he is priesthood, he's priest and king. He's king of kings and he's lord of lords, but he's also the high priest who continually lives to intercede for us, not after the order of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, but according to the order of Melchizedek, who was king and priest, over Salem, the city we now call Jerusalem. Let's go back to Revelation 1. And as we get into the description, we're, we find here, oh, I, I left out Joshua. I can't do that. <laughs> go to Joshua chapter 5. Here we have another Christophanes. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand and Joshua went to him and he said to him are you for us or are you against us and the one standing there said no and if I'm Joshua I'm thinking you didn't get the question right (laughs) I said are you for us or against us and he says no but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. All right, so now we're thinking we got a, a powerful angel here. But not so. Now here we find out why. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, every other place, when someone sees an angel, they do the same thing. They fall on her face and they worship the angel. What does the angel say? Don't do that. Because I also I'm a servant of the Lord, but not here. What does your Lord say to your servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Joshua, take the sandals off your foot, for the place you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Not only did he not reprove Joshua for worshiping him, just like Moses at the burning bush, he said, take off your shoes Joshua, you're standing on holy ground. This is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call it a Christophanes. Now we can go back to Revelation. And I want to talk a little bit because this is going to be the beginning of symbolism in the Bible. And we have two symbols here. We have seven stars at his right hand and we have seven golden lampstands. And thus, in this first chapter of Revelation, the pattern begins here for the rest of the book, as it deals with symbolism, and it's either explained. The symbolism is either explained in the same chapter, as we'll see here. It's explained in the same chapter. If you look down at verse 20, we have we have the symbolism up above, but it ex- is is explained to us in the same chapter, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Symbolism, yes. Is is it explained to us? Yes, but not always. When we have references later on, we're talking about the man of sin, um, we need more information from the Old Testament where it's not, the symbolism is not explained to us. But it is explained in the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel. We'll be studying this, starting this Wednesday night, we'll be beginning the book of Daniel because you cannot understand the book of Revelation without an understanding of the book of Daniel. Now, That takes us to verse 19, which is the key to the book of Revelation. This is an extremely important verse because it divides the book of Revelation into three different sections. Verse 19 says, John, write the things which you have seen. Present tense, number one. Then I want you to write the things that are. That's also present tense, which is chapters two and three, the things of the church. And then right to things which will take place after that, this, the Greek where there is benetata, and it means after the things that preceded it. Well, what preceded the things after that, and it would be the church age. So what we have is a key to the book that's divided into the three sections. Section one is chapter one. John, write the things you've seen. Well, what did he see? He saw the glorified Christ, seven stars in his hand, walking amongst seven golden lampstands, and then describes his appearance, his hair, his eyes, his feet is bronze. Write it down, John. And so John um, wrote, The first section is chapter one. The second section is going to be what we call the church age. Currently, we are living in that period of time. The church is still here. That's the things that are present tense. But then we have the third section after the church age, and um, that will pick up in chapter four, Where we find four and five, we find the church in heaven. And then we have the Lord opening up the sealed judgments. And from six all the way up to 16, we have the seven year period of time that we call the tribulation. I like to call it the time of Jacob's trouble. So the last verse this morning is verse 20, where again, It explains the symbolism, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. I'll close with a quote from J. Vernon McGee as he comments on this. So I'm quoting McGee on this one. The word angel here literally means messenger and may be either human or angelic beings. It could refer to messenger of the angelic host of heaven or a ruler or a teacher of a congregation on earth. McGee says, I like to think that it refers to the local pastor of the seven churches, which we are going to look at in the next two chapters. And McGee, tongue-in-cheek here, says, I like to hear a pastor called an angel because sometimes they're called other things. (laughs) So if you don't mind, I'll hold to that interpretation. And then he says, the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. The English word candlestick should be translated lampstand since it holds lamps rather than candles. It represents the seven churches of Asia, As we will see. Then, in turn, these represent the church as a whole, the church as a body of Christ. So, as we finish chapter one this morning, may I say grace and peace be unto you. Wish our mothers a happy Mother's Day, and know that we just finished the first section of the book of Revelation. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for your grace that leads us to this wonderful peace that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, that this is not a sealed book, but it's an unveiling of things that are going to be. So, Lord, we're grateful that we want to be like Abraham, Lord. We want to be called your friend as you called the disciples, you call them their friends. But you're so much more than that. You're the great counselor. You're the everlasting father. You're the prince of peace. You're the alpha and the omega. You are the first and the last. And you're also called us, Lord, in a loving and endearing way, your bride. And Lord, how we long for that day when you come for your church. In the meantime, Lord, we thank you for this book that it's not veiled but it's the unveiling, the revealing of who you are. Thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Seven a golden lamp stands, and then describes his appearance, his hair, his eyes, his feet is bronze. Write it down, John. And so John um, wrote, the first section is chapter one. The second Section is going to be what we call the church age. Currently, we are living in that period of time. The church is still here. That's the things that are present tense. But then we have the third section after the church age, and um, that will pick up in chapter four, where we find, four and five, we find the church in heaven. And then we have the Lord opening up the sealed judgments and from 6 all the way up to 16 we have the seven year period of time that we call the tribulation i like to call it the time of Jacob's trouble so the last verse this morning is verse 20 where again it explains the symbolism the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I'll close with a quote from J. Vernon McGee as he comments on this. So I'm quoting McGee on this one. The word angel here literally means messenger and may be either human or angelic beings. It could refer to messenger of the angelic host of heaven or a ruler or a teacher of a congregation on earth. McGee says, I like to think that it refers to the local pastor of the seven churches, which we are going to look at in the next two chapters. I, McGee, tongue-in-cheek here, says, I like to hear a pastor called an angel because sometimes they're called other things. <laughs> so if you don't mind, I'll hold to that interpretation. And then he says, the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. The English word candlestick should be translated lampstand since it holds lamps rather than candles. It represents the seven churches of Asia, as we will see. Then, in turn, these represent the church as a whole, the church as a body of Christ. So, as we finish chapter one this morning, may I say grace and peace be unto you. Wish our mothers a happy Mother's Day, and know that we just finished the first section of the book. Of Revelation. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for your grace that leads us to this wonderful peace that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, that this is not a sealed book, but it's an unveiling of things that are going to be. So, Lord, we're grateful that we want to be like Abraham, Lord. We want to be called your friend as you called the disciples, you call them their friends. But you're so much more than that. You're the great counselor. You're the everlasting father. You're the prince of peace. You're the alpha and the omega. You are the first and the last. And you're also called us, Lord, in a loving and endearing way, your bride. And Lord, how we long for that day when you come for your church. In the meantime, Lord, we thank you for this book that is not veiled, but it's the unveiling, the revealing of who you are. Thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.